Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations and tell stories about the intersection of race and real life. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and a self-proclaimed diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because I have to finish telling you my story about being Black in Spain. Hello, Melting Pot community. On episode 20 of the podcast, we're going back to Spain for part two of my audio memoir. Just a recap. On the last episode, it was all about Spain's hidden Black history, or rather, how Spain's hidden history of over 400 years of African slavery was no longer hidden, and in fact, is now being examined and shared by academics, artists, and authors all over Spain. For part two, we're leaving history behind and stepping into present times. In chapters three, four, and five, you'll hear about what life is like for Black people living in Spain today. Black Africans, Afro-Spanish people, and African-Americans. Needless to say, just because Spain is learning to embrace her Black past doesn't mean she is eager to embrace all of her Black citizens. Chapter 3. Spain is not good for Black people. A recent headline from Spain's largest newspaper, El País, reads, Man arrested for racist attack against Black woman in Madrid. Quote, Go back to your country. Unquote. It would be easy to say that Spain has a race problem. But Spaniards aren't racists. Like most European countries, they don't compile racial statistics, and they don't categorize people by race. In fact, that quote-unquote black woman in the article in El País was Dominican. So Spaniards don't see race, and you can't be racist if you don't see race, right? Wrong. Another way of looking at Spain might be to say that Spain doesn't have a race problem. Spain has an immigration problem. Like Greece and Italy, Spain is a popular entry point into Europe for African migrants. Whether they intend to stay in Spain or not, those Africans that do stay are most often forced into low-level jobs in the agricultural or service sectors. For many Spaniards, the only Black Africans they see are the street vendors who sell knockoff designer clothes and tourist trinkets in public squares. Black people are therefore associated with illegal immigration, low-level workers, and crime. Of course, these are stereotypes exacerbated by the fact that Black people are not seen in positions of power, in the media, or you might remember from episode one, in the history books. Of course, reality is not stereotypes. Even though Spain doesn't track its population by race, a 2017 article in El País estimated that the Black population in Spain is around 1 million people. Spain's total population is around 46 million. Most of the Black people currently living in Spain hail from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, Francophone Africa, Latin America, as well as Spain's own former African colony, Equatorial Guinea. Some are recent immigrants, some are not. And many Black people in Spain, particularly those from Equatorial Guinea, are second- and third-generation immigrants who view themselves as completely Spanish, even if their fellow countrymen do not. Some Black Spaniards refer to themselves as Afro-Spanish. Others use the term negro or negra. 
The problem in Spain is that no matter how long you and your ancestors have lived in Spain, whether you call yourself Afro-Spanish or just Spanish, the average Spaniard sees you as an outsider at best, a problem at worst. Not surprisingly, Spain's two largest cities, Madrid and Barcelona, are also the two cities with the largest populations of black people. Also not surprisingly, Madrid and Barcelona are where instances of police aggression towards black people, racial violence, and blatant discrimination in all sectors of public life seem to be the most common. It's also where most pro-black activist groups are springing up and bringing attention to Spain's anti-black racism and anti-immigrant discrimination. So on the one hand, you could look at that as problematic, because it is. But you could also see progress in the fact that groups like Afrofemininas, Somos Migrantes, and SOS Racismo Madrid exist and have enough social and political capital to attract local, national, and international attention to the plight of Black people in Spain. I wanted to learn more about what life was like for Spain's Black citizens, so I decided to go to a conference that happened to be taking place while I was in Spain this summer. The Afro-European Conference was held in Lisbon, Portugal, And as the title would suggest, it's a conference that examines the Black experience throughout Europe. My goal in attending the conference was to listen and learn everything I could about being Black in contemporary Spain, from the academics and activists who were experts in this field. I'm glad I went, because I did learn a lot. But almost everything I heard was really depressing. My first experience was overall Spain is not a place for black people. I don't know that it's the worst in Europe, but it's got to be amongst the worst. That was Professor Stephen Small, a native of Liverpool, England, and a professor of African-American studies at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the author of the book, 20 Questions and Answers on Black Europe. Professor Small delivered the keynote address at the conference, and afterwards he sat down with me to tell me all about his experiences living in Spain and his research of the black experience there. Professor Small painted a pretty bleak picture of Spain, speaking of everyday racism, police harassment, and an overall lack of visibility and agency felt by Black people. He pointed to the lack of Black people in positions of power as one of the many barriers to equality. So it's seriously depressing, you know. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what I say is common to Europe, visibility, it's all Black people suffering. Uh, Vulnerability, there's no Blacks in Parliament. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked in five cities, 12 universities, 30 programs. I never met a single Black professor. Not one. Professor Small didn't sugarcoat his opinion about Spain. But he was also clear that there is a hierarchy in terms of how Black people are treated based on where they come from, how well they speak Spanish, and what they look like. For example, lighter skin, or a blue American passport makes a difference in how Spaniards will treat black people. This wasn't exactly new information for me to hear, but it was still disheartening to hear it again. After speaking with Professor Small, I was thrilled to meet a woman at the conference named Desiree Bella Lobede. I didn't realize it at the time, but Desiree is a bit of a celebrity of sorts. Probably a better word would be to call her an influencer, although she wouldn't introduce herself that way. A native of Barcelona, both of Desiree's parents were born in Equatorial Guinea. But Desiree grew up thinking of herself as Spanish, like her peers. Her mother never spoke to her about her homeland and never taught her daughter her native language. Desiree speaks Spanish and Catalan, and her third language is English. Desiree has a day job, but she is a popular blogger, a newspaper columnist, activist, 
and the author of the new memoir, Ser Mujer Negra en España. That translates to To Be a Black Woman in Spain. Fun fact, Desiree started her blogging and activist career by writing about my favorite topic, black hair. But despite her online and publishing success, Desiree confirmed everything Professor Small had told me, and then some. Being a black woman in Spain, she said, was not easy. What is it like to be a black woman in Spain? I've been asked many times, what is it like? As I've wrote a book about that, and this is its title, To Be a Black Woman in Spain. But since I've got few minutes to answer, I will try to summarize my story. It is curious because I've always answered to white people asking me this. So I don't know if being a black woman in Spain makes any difference with being a black woman anywhere else in other Western countries, as we have to deal with racism, white privilege, white supremacy, and many forms of discrimination. But I guess that, although the main problem is the same, manifestations are different. I used to answer that raising in Spain as a black kid has been challenging. I was the only black child at my school. I was one of the few black people at high school. I can recall we were less than 10 people. And when I got to the university, we were only two black young women at my faculty. But since I attended classes in the morning and the other girl in the afternoon, we almost never met in the same spaces. I had no black friends except for my own family. And my mom and I lived far from them. So I grew up mingling with very few black people and that created a sense of solitude. I started to have black friends when I was in like my 16 or 17s. But it wasn't until my late 20s when I began to bond with black people, especially with other black women. Then I became a mother and that was a kind of trigger for me. I felt like I had to do something. I had to speak up. I started my vlog and the rest came naturally. I began writing in my own blog and later some alternative media got in touch offering me to write for them. And two years ago, I started my own column on a Spanish online newspaper called Publico. After that, I broke my book and it gave me the chance to talk on TV and radio shows, telling what is my experience like. But as I always say, this is not just my experience. I'm talking about a common experience because many women have grown as me, being the only black girl at school, facing insults or bullying at school and with no ways to get protected from that. People here in Spain tend to think they're not racist just because they don't go out to crush and beat people, black people. But they often forget that the Spanish empire colonized many territories and that implies a story of abuse, slavery and violence. 
they ignore structural racism and they think it is an invention of black people because we like to play the victim role. So is it hard to get them aware and make them accountable of their racist behavior? What do I do to fight this? I participate as a speaker at different events, and in addition to writing articles about racism in my own column, I have started offering online education for white people who want to raise awareness on racism and check their privileges. And that's what I do. I hope you guys find it interesting, and if you want, we can keep talking. Hasta luego! Chapter 4. Spain is good for the blacks, if they are American. Despite what you just heard in Chapter 3, not all black people are suffering in Spain. In fact, in the last decade since I've been away, the number of black American expats in Spain appears to be increasing. At least it seemed that way based on the fact that every time I was on the internet, I found myself reading about yet another black woman, man, or family who had found their bliss by moving to Spain. To see if I was accurate in my assessment, I called the person who I knew had firsthand knowledge of the situation. Sienna Brown is the founder of Las Morenas de España, an online and in-real-life community of support for black women living or wanting to live in Spain. Brown herself has been living in Spain for the last five years and also studied abroad in Spain during college. Though she doesn't keep official stats on the number of black American expats in Spain, she did have anecdotal evidence that the number of black Americans moving to Spain is definitely increasing. She has seen it in the number of members in her Las Morenas community, and she has seen it in the number of black meetups she can now find in cities across the country anything from a black poets group in Madrid to a black ladies who brunch in Sevilla. Even in smaller cities, like the one she used to live in, where she was literally half the black population, she has seen growth in the black expat community. I used to live in Murcia, which is a town that does not have very many expats and definitely does not have many black Americans. I remember when I was living there, I was one of two. And this was... Five years ago, so from 2014 until 2017. And this past spring, I went back to host a meetup in Murcia, which when I was there, it never made sense for me to organize one because I said there's not enough women of color in the region. And we had a group of almost 20 women. And it literally brought tears to my eyes because this is a part of Spain that does not have a huge expat community that is not very well known either. And to be able to say, wow, There's 20 like, women of color from a ton of different countries doing an amazing array of things in a place that I used to call home here in Spain. And like, just to be able to see that big of a switch literally almost brought me to tears as I was there because I was like, this is amazing because we're able to find and create communities in places that you wouldn't normally think that we would be able to create them in. Before I introduce you to the expats I interviewed to find out what was bringing them to Spain, I want to clarify a few things. Black Americans moving to Spain is not a new thing. Spain is no France, but there has been a steady stream of Black Americans coming to Spain since the Spanish Civil War in 1936, when Black Americans volunteered to help fight the fascists who were trying to overthrow Spain's liberal government. 
One African-American soldier who fought in the famously integrated Abraham Lincoln Brigade in Spain wrote, I never felt more like a man than I did in Spain. African-American writers like Nella Larson, Langston Hughes, and Richard Wright spent time in Spain. Chester Himes, the African-American pulp fiction writer originally from California, he fled American racism and went to Paris, but he didn't find what he was looking for there. And he spent the rest of his days living in, you guessed it, Spain. So back to today. Given Spain's resurgence of interest in her Black past, but continuing problem with her Black citizens, I wanted to know why more Black Americans are not just visiting, but moving to Spain in record numbers. I also wanted to know if they felt conflicted living in a country with such a pitiful record of racial equality. I interviewed several Black Americans and one Black British woman in cities all over southern Spain. Each of them have chosen Spain as their adopted home, and while clearly the small amount of people that I spoke to isn't enough to draw a conclusion, their individual stories give a sense of what could lure a Black American to the Iberian Peninsula. I started my interviews in the dry heat of Granada, Spain. I went there to interview Dr. Nicholas Jones. Nick is living in Granada for the year, doing research for his next book, and leading his college's study abroad program. We sat in his classroom, and I asked him questions about why he loves Spain. And while he unabashedly does love the country and could easily see himself living there long term, he is very much aware that his experiences are not universal. How do you feel as a Black American man living in Spain? Do you feel it is a place that is welcoming? Do you feel free here? And I... I'm going to ask you to compare it to your life in the United States, just because that's the purpose of this conversation. Is Spain a good place for you to be as a black man? I would say absolutely yes. I think Spain, when I come to Spain, it's where I feel most human, um, at home, most complete. And I would say across all aspects, you know, of my personal life, you know, romantically, socially, culturally, academically, professionally, rather, most definitely, absolutely yes. On the flip side, for those listening, people also need to check their own assumptions and politics about the Black experience and check themselves and not assume that there's this monolithic Black experience. Just because, you know, my Black experience in Spain or our Black experience in Spain may be positive or, you know, however you want to call it or define it, conceptualize it, you know, does it mean that I'm trying to, you know, negate or subdue the suffering and the, you know, racist stuff that other Black diasporic people may face. Again, I'm specifically talking about my experience. And again, I'm fully aware of the gamut and the different, I don't want to use the word diversity of treatment, but the the variation, the variety of treatments of, you know, Black people. While I was in Granada, I also got to spend time with Chris Lindsay. Chris and her husband recently moved to Granada from Chicago after her husband retired. They've been in this ancient city for a little less than a year, but are fully enchanted by their new life. While we sat in her thousand-year-old house in the historic Albacin neighborhood, Chris explained to me why Spain appealed to her, why she feels comfortable there as a Black woman, and how she feels about her Black American privilege. The way of life here makes much more sense to me. 
um, than the way of life that we had in the States. And many things are easier. So getting healthy food is easier. Getting health insurance, my health insurance costs exactly one-twelfth of what it would cost me if I was in the States. So there are just things that, for me, resonate. And for the first couple of months, some of our friends were kind of irritated because we would be like, can you believe that this is what we spend for a restaurant or a plane ticket or a bottle of wine or health insurance? And tell me what you mean when you say that the way of life here makes more sense. Were you referring to the health insurance and food or is there more to it? Oh, there's, there's lots more to it. And I don't know if it is true of Europe or even Spain in general, but what I can say of Andalusia is that it is centered on living and not working. And I spent 30 years and my husband spent 40 years working constantly. Our ability to kind of eke out enjoyment and scratch it and claw it out of our, our days and our weeks was something that we had to fight for. And the ability to spend time with family, the ability to not be completely consumed and defined by what you do, and to have some thought to who you are and what you believe and who you want to be with and what kind of community you want to build and what's important in your family. Like, those are things that animate this part of Spain. You know, it's part of what you can see in everyday life. It's why people take a siesta. It's a huge joke for a lot of people that don't understand it, but it is a time for you to reconnect, power down, take care of yourself, enjoy your time with your family. And in Spanish, they have names for all of these things. They're, they're, they're very ritualized and they're very sacred. And that, and that is true for a reason. I worked in DC for a good chunk of time. And what struck me there, and one of the things that got to grate on me a lot, was the first question that people ask you. What do people ask you when they meet you at a party? What do you do? And, and that, doesn't, that doesn't define me. And, and there were some days, and I was, I was a CEO at some points. I had really kind of high-level positions. But I would make things up because I, I just found it ridiculous that that was the only thing that was worth knowing about me. And so I just wanted to kind of underscore that point. So, so the value of who you are, what you enjoy, your ability to have a good conversation with somebody, your ability to enjoy food, your ability to enjoy Spain. I'm wondering if, does that concern you at all that as a black American, you obviously have privilege here because you are not treated the same way that African immigrants are treated or even black Spaniards are treated? Does that factor into your thoughts about the country at all? Or do you feel any kind of responsibility to do work for those people for your, in your new adopted country to have a black activist mindset in any way? Well, a black activist mindset is not something you leave in the storage unit when you, when you leave home, right? I mean, it's in you. That said, I think that I come from a few places on this. Number one, my experience here is unique. It's my experience. People from my entire life have tried to figure out what box I belonged in because I am very light-skinned, is the only way I can put it, non-threatening, and people, as I've traveled throughout the world, don't know quite what box, like, what, what are you? And, and there have been times where, only a few times, when I felt endangered when I was traveling globally, where I claimed American. Like, nope, I'm American. Like, when I was in Israel and nobody knew what I was, I was like, let me show you my passport, because I don't want whatever to go down 
about to go down. So I recognize that my experience walking in this body, presenting whatever it is that I present to people, is not what everybody is going to have as their experience. My husband, on the other hand, is a 60-year-old black man that you cannot mistake for anything but a 60-year-old black man. But it is clear that he is not a 60-year-old African man. And we, we talk about this with our friends here all the time. It's like people will stop and look and try to figure out what box to put you in. Is that annoying? Do I find that kind of fundamentally troubling? No. And here's why. There's so much that bothers me about the United States of America that the fact that we can walk around here and I never think about him getting snatched up, him getting shot, anything fundamentally bad happening to us, anybody coming up, rolling up on us and calling us a nigga, any other thing. People called me, I, I mean, I literally had somebody do the, I'm going to get darker than you for my summer vacation thing with me, one of my, my Spanish. And I'm like, look, man, I got a head start on you. You know, I'm a black woman, so good luck with that. That's so benign compared to a president telling some people to go back to a country when they're originally from that country, except for one who's legally in that country. Like the weight of the states is so heavy for me that my primary response is that it's not just that this is so much better, but this is different. So if a black American woman said to you, you know, I'm ready to leave the U.S., I can't take it anymore, I'm thinking about moving to Spain, what would you tell her that she needed to know? I wish I had a more interesting answer for this question. (laughs) I think that everybody has their own story and their own truth. And I am very mindful that mine is my own, right? I am a 53-year-old, high yellow, black woman living in Granada. And that's a very different experience from somebody who may be younger, looking for a community, trying to date. Um, There is machismo here, you know, for days. And so encountering men is something that I don't experience because I came with my own. I think regionally, there's huge differences. And one of the reasons that you know exploring Granada beforehand was really important because there are places in the middle of the country or Galicia, which is hard and rugged and closed. And it's like you know moving to North Dakota. I wouldn't do that either. There are other places that are very parochial, and it would take a million years to break into that. And people, you know, are trying to wear you down to see what you're made of. Um, it was also my experience in, in Virginia, outside of Richmond. So, you know, I don't know what other people's experiences are. And so I can't give any insight or I don't have any insight about what they're experiencing. I believe it is absolutely their experience. I also know that the way I felt when I was half my current age, I'm not sure I would have made it, right? I, I, have, I have a sense of history, of people, of change, of what's really directed towards me, of what I'm really secure about, that comes with time and experience and lots of knocks. So I bring all of that with me. And so if somebody looks at me, you know, A, I'm worried about whether or not I got something on my shoe or like whatever. But other than that, it's like, look, this is me. You know, it's 53 year old in the making, and this is how I 
this is who showed up. From Granada, I went to Sevilla to talk with Michaela Israel. Michaela is 32 years old and has lived in Spain for eight years. Originally from New York City, Michaela came to Spain to learn Spanish, but she ended up falling in love with the country and a Spaniard, whom she eventually married. As we sat in her apartment and ate fresh cherries, Michaela told me she loves her life in Sevilla, but she does think about the possibility of returning to the United States. But she worries about what she would have to sacrifice if she did. I think about that often, and I think about the state. Okay, so the states right now we're in a what I would consider a terrible situation. There is overt racism, but. I also think that the States has always been this way and that the States, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think we might be a racist country with no return. Like, I don't know if there's a way to fix what we have in the States, which makes me really, really sad. But the difficulties that I have in the States are obviously not the same difficulties that I have in Spain. You know, if like the last time I was there, I was there last month, actually, I was at a Father's Day barbecue in the Bronx in a park and like the police drove by. And for some reason, like I just got so nervous and like that doesn't happen to me here. I'm not afraid of the police because I'm not doing anything wrong. But like there I was like, oh, my gosh, like. I'm at a barbecue, like I'm with a bunch of other minority, like black and brown people. We're playing music. I don't know. It's just like that typical situation where you're like, oh, are they going to harass you today? Are they going to be in a good mood today? Are they going to leave you alone today? And here I don't have to deal with that. But I remember one of my friends, one of my ex coworkers, we talked about having children here and we talked about what it would be like for them living in Spain. One of the things she asked me was, well, how do you feel about like raising black children here in this country? And I was like, I mean, if I raise them in the States, it's going to be the same things that they have to deal with here. Maybe it would be even worse for them in the States because then I'm going to be worried about their safety the entire time. And so some people think that maybe having a child here in Spain is going to be like the worst thing ever. But I, I'm not sure. I, I don't really have like, um, I'm not sure which would be better or worse. After speaking with Chris and Michaela and Sienna Brown and Nick Jones, I started to see how Black Americans could make a life in this country despite Spain's anti-Black, anti-immigrant attitude. On the one hand, compared to the virulent racism going down in the United States these days, Spain's racism might seem like a better option. Also, as Chris Lindsay pointed out, the cost of living and the lifestyle seems well worth the downside of the country's racial problems. The last person I spoke to was Yinka Essie Graves. Yinka is the featured flamenco dancer in the documentary Gurumbe, which I spoke about in episode one. Originally from England, Yinka is a true unicorn, a black British woman making a name for herself as a flamenco dancer in Spain. Even before her performance in the film, Yinka was working steadily as a dancer in Spain, having lived in the country for the past 11 years, and the film simply increased her profile. I spoke to Yinka at an outdoor cafe and asked her what she had seen change in the decades since she's been there as it relates to black people and what has kept her here for all this time. 
Can you tell me, since you've been here 11 years, have you seen any changes in how you're treated as a black woman living in Spain? And either changes in your just your personal kind of living and or changes in how you're perceived on stage? Yeah, I often think when I think about my time here as a black woman, particularly in moments where I'm made to feel a bit uncomfortable or something, I'm very aware that part of surviving here and part of kind of keeping on track with my desire to learn flamenco has meant that I've had to kind of block out a lot of what we'd call now microaggressions, a sense of even being in class and knowing that nobody really thinks that I'm ever going to be anywhere because it's like, well, you don't belong, you know, doing this. I've had experiences of teachers kind of almost ignoring my... Um, desire or ambition to be able to be professional in it, no? So I sometimes feel that maybe I haven't made the reflections around it in the same way because I've had to just ignore it. But having said that, in terms of the dancing, I definitely say that I think now there are more people who are coming to flamenco. For example, I have peers like Phyllis, Akini or Esther Weeks, or Telma Obs, you know, there are a few people who are coming up who are learning. And I've had people say to me, like, oh, you know, you being there has made us feel like there is a place for us as well. When you say us, you mean these are other black women coming up in the flamenco scene? Or who are learning. I definitely think it's still difficult. It's not a, a thing that we're going to see as a normal thing, let's say but I feel that there are more people being present and I think that's what changes it, no? Is, is simply, you know, I, I'd say that my existing, and I'm not the first, I must say, there was a woman called Nicolia Harris who did quite a lot of work maybe about eight years before I, I was here and obviously Esther Weeks has been here for a long time, but I think that maybe part of my insistence and in just being there is kind of what means that little by little you're, you, are, you exist, you know, you just do exist. And I think that that's the thing, we've got to make sure that we continue being present. And I think that's what I'm seeing now, is that maybe whereas before people didn't feel comfortable in being in certain spaces, maybe now it's kind of like, okay, well, we have a right to. I don't know, I think it's like a mixture of those things that it's like, well, tough luck because I'm still I'm going to be here whether you like it or not, you know, that kind of attitude. Chapter 5. The Conclusion. So here's my takeaway. Revisiting Spain after 10 years away, I didn't feel like an outsider as I had before. I didn't notice the stares or the pointing. Nobody called me chocolate. Nobody bothered my children either. In the toy stores, I found black baby dolls and Legos with black figurines. In the bookstores, I found adult and children's titles with black and brown characters. I bought art from a Haitian art gallery situated right in the heart of the city of Cadiz. I met black tourists and expats who were living their best lives. So this wasn't the Spain I remembered. It felt far more welcoming than before, and I found so many examples of blackness everywhere I went. But behind the black saints and happy black Americans were the painful experiences of Spain's African immigrants and Afro-Spanish citizens. Does one turn a blind eye to their suffering and take advantage of one's blue passport 
Or would it be better to boycott the country until they figure out how to eradicate their anti-African racism? I don't have the answers for you or anybody else. I think that's a personal choice that everyone has to make for themselves. But as the wife of a Spaniard and the mother of three Black and Spanish children, I don't feel I have the option to boycott Spain. I've already stayed away too long. Spain is a part of my family story now. It is a part of me. And I feel I have an obligation to continue to share the stories of Spain's Black past and present for my children, for myself, for Spain, and the world. I'm a storyteller. That's what I do. And I hope that by sharing these stories, it will help Spain embrace all of her citizens equally. The Black people who have lived there for generations and the newly arrived. Thank you for listening to my audio memoir. I hope you enjoyed my story. Be sure to check out the show notes on myamericanmeltingpot.com to find links to some of the people and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you've ever been Black in Spain, please tell me about it. I'd love to hear about your experiences. Leave me a comment on the blog or on the My American Melting Pot Facebook page. And now for a little bit of housekeeping. Don't forget the My American Melting Pot Book Club is now reading The Other Americans by Leila Lalami. You can join us in our private My American Melting Pot Facebook group for our virtual book club meetup later this month. Also, Leila Lalami is going to be a guest on the podcast on November 1st. Fun fact, The Other Americans was just nominated for a National Book Award, so you know it's a good book. And finally... If you are enjoying the podcast, and I hope you are, please consider leaving us a rating or review, or both, on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help other people find the show. And if you can't find the time to leave a review, just tell someone about it. Tell a friend, tell your mom, tell your coworkers. I really appreciate the effort. Episode 20 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Marchesani. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. This episode also included the song Flamencología by Knowledge, which you can find at the free music archive. Thank you for listening, and always remember to live your life in color.